You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. A stronger-than-expected jobs report, and Wall Street still sees a 70% chance of a March rate cut. Are they getting that wrong? That's what our economist thinks. She'll tell us why and when she sees the first cut in the cards now. Plus, by one metric, stocks aren't off to a great start this year. Well, by many metrics, but this one says it could set the tone for the rest of the year. So why is our market guest so excited? He's here to make his case and tell us all the places he's seeing opportunity this year. And with earnings season nearly upon us again, we look at three names that Danielle Shea says could be positioned for gains into the print and one she's staying away from. It's all about big tech as well today. Let's start with the markets, though. The Dow is down 100 points at the lows, up 183 at the highs. We're down a quarter percent right now. We're going to snap nine-week win streaks for pretty much all of these, even with the S&P fractionally higher right now. Same for the Nasdaq. The 10-year hit a fresh high of 4103 earlier today, right after the jobs report, but we did reverse lower after the weaker ISM data. Let me not get ahead of Steve Leisman. He's sitting right here yes. to give us the full scoop. on. I actually have an up and down on that. You'll see in this nice chart we have. But here's the thing. I think a stronger, the stronger than expected jobs report offered markets a lesson in what the Fed has kind of been talking about. The improvement in inflation, the slowing of the economy, it's not a straight line. Though beneath the hood there, there is some slowing going on. Let me just show you here the top line numbers, non-farm payrolls, 216. Uh, there were down revisions again of 71,000. Ten of the past 11 reports have been revised to the downside. Unemployment rate, though, down to 3.7%. A tick down in the participation rate, that wasn't good. Average hourly earnings, though, up just a little bit, 4.1% uh, on the average hourly earnings. There was some weakness in, in the report that I think... Call it under the hood. It looks to have captured the market's attention here and caused it not to be quite so concerned about it. Three-month average for, t- for the total shows it's declined to 165,000 from 334. The private sector has fallen 115 from 271 last January. So the three-month average is slowly cooling. Private sector up 164,000 this month, though. Um, but government was 52,000 of the total there. Leisure and hospitality still making up ground from the pandemic. Healthcare, that doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. We need to hire nurses and doctors. That was up 38,000. One leading indicator though, temporary help down 33,000. It's been down several months in a row. Other cooling signs, as Kelly mentioned, came from the eyes and service sector with the top line coming in below expectations, the price component and the employment index both fell. And this is what I was talking about here. All this data creating a lot of volatility in the outlook for the Fed. Before the jobs report, a 65% probability that March cut fell to 57% after the, it rose to 57% after the jobs report. And then it rose again after uh, the ISM at 68%. All that's to say the market is still pretty sure of that March cut, but maybe now has embraced just a bit more of the doubt. The big question is this. After a year when the job market remained strong and inflation came down, how much should we really care about the jobs market and its impact on inflation? Let's ask Diane Swank. I bet she has some thoughts on it. Our next guest says diverging data is putting the Fed between a rock and a hard place in its inflation fight. And she thinks the biggest mistake would be cutting rates too soon. Diane Swank is chief economist at KPMG. Well, what are your thoughts today, Diane? Well, I think Steve did a good summary there. One of the things I would go into is the devil is in the details. And one of the surprises in the report was in the household survey and that almost all of the loss in employment that we saw in the household survey versus that establishment report, um, payroll report, was due to the fact that people left the labor force, mostly those over 55 left labor force just en masse during the month. And that's really stunning. We also had record number of people out on vacation for the month of December. Ever. 
for the month of December. So revenge travel has become systemic now. I think that's really interesting. We had an all-time high on multi multiple job holders. That in the 2000s, back in the 1990s, it wasn't this way, but ever since the 2001 recession, we've seen multiple job holders rising to during a tighter labor market because employers have been more willing to be flexible with workers. Of course, it's a bit of a sad commentary that multiple job holders are necessary in an economy. And I think what we're seeing is none like the 1990s when multiple job holders actually fell as the labor market tightened. We see multiple job holders go to a record high. Those also going on voluntary part-time employment went to a record high this mm -hmm. month. So in that data, we also, I mean, the, the wage data, you talked about it only creeping up slightly, Steve. We saw that huge surge in non-supervisory manufacturing wages due to the UAW contracts and some spillover that really surprised me in the retail sector as well. That was not expected. And the gains that we saw there are things that the Fed are watching because they're worried that wages may not come down to be consistent to hold inflation at its 2% target over the long haul. I just want to bounce the following off both of you and is looking back through, you know, some of the real rates and what's been going on with markets. And the, we've had this big increase in real rates over the past week, literally 165 up to 185. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing stocks stumble in the meantime. And Steve, I wonder if this is because the Fed has been pushing back on the rate cut narrative. We've seen some officials doing so. We saw the minutes kind of doing so. Is the market trying to tell us, no, they should be cutting here? You know, even the, the, the inflation expectations yeah. have not picked up. No. In October, two no. and a half percent on the five-year break-evens. We're still at, we're down at 218. So it seems to be saying to them, you have the space, you can, you can take the cuts. But I don't hear their rhetoric kind of setting us up for that. I don't think so either. I think the Fed has other considerations that it needs to take into account, which is the consideration of what if that is the wrong call? Mm -hmm. What the Fed does not want to be doing is in the pro be in the business of reversing itself again. Um, so it's going to be darn sure yep. that inflation is vanquished and extinguished before that happens. Um, uh, I, I do think, Dan, I, I need to just warn you that I'm in the process of a conversion here. Um, I'm converting almost entirely to ADP wage data. Um, I'm not quite there yet. I got a meeting next week with Neela Richardson that's off the record for the moment, but is going to create it's actually, some... Actually, it's, it's really great data. Let me tell you what the story I just found out is, which is that the Atlanta, Fed, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker uses a survey sample of 2,000 employees. The Atlanta, you want to know what ADP is? A hundred and something Ten thousand. Million. Oh, I know. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Ten million. And it's, it's not survey yeah, no. data, it's, it's, it's paycheck data. No, and the, it's actual... Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm so, right there with so you. So I'll tell you, yes. I'll tell you, that's the reason I did not highlight in my report. Maybe I should have told viewers. So is this. ADP wage data been softer than it's what the BLS just said? It's been coming down. I doubt Miss Betsy Spring has in the background the, the chart we used this morning. It's been coming down and coming down carefully. Here's the other thing I know, Powell, especially for job switchers. Right, Powell has used huh. this data three times. A non-public part of it. He has mentioned it, that they're getting some of this data. Interesting. And I'm talking to Neil about us getting this data, making it yep. public. So here's, here's the deal. The deal is that that's the ADP non-farm. I'm not yet converted to their payroll report yet, but I am to their wage data because it's 10 million actual paychecks. And they also, by the way, get the actual hours. If I asked you, Kelly, but how many hours did you work last week in a survey? You wouldn't know. I don't know. You don't know. 
but these are actual paycheck data. So I'm very excited about this. The only thing, and I, I'm excited because you're kind of making the point that we were just making about maybe that. But I, Dan, you know, in answering that, just a little bit of a wonky econ question for we you. We can though. only do that on the show. Would I rather have a sample? Yeah than an incomplete full data set. In other words, would it be better to have 1,800 people represent the entire economy than no. to have 10, mil, you know, 10 million people not quite represent 12 million or, or something like that? You know what I'm saying? I think, I think basically we have to use all the data together, and that's what we do. And, and I love Neela, and I love what she's done with the ADP report and the data. It really is very useful now. There's interesting things in that data. One of the interesting things is that if you pay doctors more, they retire sooner. Ha. Oh, interesting. The other Just thing, though, Diane, there. there it is. Look at that. Betsy got it up. I got I to gotta give her a shout out on wow. TV. This is the story here. Diane, can you see that chart? What we're seeing here, that's the Atlanta Fed. Guys, you have the other chart which shows job stayers versus changers. What that shows is the premium yep. to changing jobs is less now than it was it's before. Narrowed, it's narrowed. Yep. So it was it yep. was double digits. Now it's, it it's doesn't. Less than there half. it is. There it is. So, so there, it's just come up. Up. This is we're doing live television. Changes This is called. This is action economics right here. Um, and and you can see that yep. gap there narrowing, Kelly. Right. Well, Diane, do you think this actually makes the case for the Fed having plenty of room to cut rates? This is the issue is that the Fed needs more evidence. The, the, the biggest mistake you can possibly make in central banking, the cardinal sin of central banking, is to cut and have to raise again. So, you know, whether they cut in March or May, that's not going to make a lot of difference for the overall economy. But waiting that extra time to get more data to feel really comfortable that inflation is not only going to the 2% target, but is going to stay there. That is what the Fed needs. And I think that thinking like a central banker is really important here because that's one error they do not want to make. But Diane, you don't mind if I interrupt you and just tell you, remind you, though, Powell has said we can cut before we get to the 2% target. So there yes. is a certain, Absolutely. how shall I say it, anticipatory nature to the pro process. No. So it doesn't have to be there. Absolutely. They have to be sure that they're no. going there. Here's the question that I going have. Going there is, and it's going to stay there. This is, I'm going to preempt Kelly, Kelly's next question, okay? I'll see <laughs> if I get this right. Is two more jobs reports and three more inflation reports, boom, that's five, is that going to be enough to convince the Fed by March, could it be enough by five by, by March if you have the easing of the job market along with three inflation reports that show this trend back to two percent? It could be. There's no question <laughs> it could be. And it's not my bet, but it could be. Right. My, hey, this is a you know the one thing that I, I think of Voltaire these days. What is this quote? Um, uh, uh, Uncertainty is an uncomfortable condition, but certainty is absurd. Um, <laughs> doubt is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is absurd. And I think certainty about anything right now is right. absurd. And Does I it think matter, Diane, though? I guess, I guess the question I have, and, and I ask myself this question, because we spend an awful lot of time pounding the table, March, May, June, July. Blah, blah. Does it matter? Yeah. The only thing no. I think it matters about is this is the market, I think, is very, very anxious to see if the curve will disinvert. And when that right. happens, it will create a series of potential financing events and things that can happen. For example... Good or bad. Well, both, I think. I, I think, for example, if, if short-term rates are below long-term rates, you might think about a floating note. But when they're on top of each other where they are now, or they're, or they're inverted, 
you wouldn't really want to think about that differential right now. Once that happens, it creates a series of financing things that CFOs, Wall Street investment bankers, they're going to be interested in that. So one of the questions I have gotten from guys is, Steve, when do you think this all happens? Because then that creates this cascade of things like that. Also, it's a more normal state for the economy. Right, it's better for the banking sector, but I just look back on the history. and it's, Is it the bad kind of disinversion that comes when the economy is really slowing? Right. Let me give Diane the last word here. Diane, what would tell you that we're really... Yeah, do you need a negative payrolls report before it's really lights out and otherwise you think the expansion keeps going? Um, well, we need more than one negative payrolls report to think the lights are out on the expansion, given how close we're already nibbling at um, that. As, as Steve said, we slowed on private sector employment report. That said, um, I think a soft landing, it's important to remember that's not the same as no landing. And so if we really do have this slowdown in hiring that does edge up the unemployment rate, that's a squeeze on margins. And that's what we saw in the ISM survey today. That's hmm. a great point. And the employment piece was down sharply. Maybe it's an aberration like people are saying and maybe not because it'll be a couple more months time to see. Thank you both so much today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Diane, Diane Swank, and of course, our own Steve Leisman. The Dow is back near session lows, erasing a 130.83 point gain. Let's get more from Dom Chu. Dom, how's it looking? So it looks just about it, like the way it did maybe in the pre-market trade ahead of the opening bell on the heels of that jobs number that came out earlier this morning. So we saw what was implied to be about 180 point downside in the market then we got the 180 point upside you know later on this morning so we're just about flat on the session right now so if you want to call this kind of like a goldilocks scenario i guess you can say on balance after everything was digested things have been taken in stride overall the nasdaq composite right now is up just about flat on the session 14,514 the S&P 500, 46.86 is the last trade there, just about flat on the session as well. And the Dow Industrial is lagging just a bit here, down about one quarter of 1%, 107 points, 37,336. An interesting look at the state of play right now. Yes, we're only a handful of days into the new trading year so far. However, if you take a look at the overall picture for this year-to-date gain right now, Okay, well, I'm not showing you that, but I'm showing you the intraday moves. But if I was to show you the chart of the year-to-day action, you would see that financials, you would uh, rather healthcare, you would see energy, and you would see utilities as the best-performing sectors so far on that basis. Now, let's talk about one of the moves that we are seeing overall today in the financial side of things. We have seen a slate of moves Mixed overall, but generally to the upside so far today, names like Synchrony Financial, Capital One, BNY Mellon, American Express, and J.P. Morgan Chase are all up on the day ahead of the big bank earnings kickoff to season next week for earnings pictures. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase actually gets that kind of star over here because it hit a record high in trading today. But all these other guys get check marks, Kelly, because each of these names hit their own 52-week or more high so far today. So keeping on those financials, that's the current state of the market right now. Send things back. Yeah, you wonder if it goes back to kind of the uninverting curve that uh, Steve was talking about. Dom, for now, thanks. We appreciate it. Our Dominic Chu. Stocks are on track to close the first trading week of the year with four consecutive down days, and that could be bad news. The Stock Traders Almanac warns the first five trading days are an open for the rest of the year. But my next guest is a little more optimistic and, in fact, says he's rarely seen this many good investment opportunities. Here with me now is Steve Auth, the Chief Investment Officer of Equities at Federated Hermes. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Likewise, Kelly. Especially because your mood is so different from a lot of the, well, Okay, maybe it's not as different right now. We've seen a lot of optimism around the turn of the year, but you're saying you really see a lot of opportunities out there, even with stocks near all-time highs. Yeah, I mean, we're the broader market, Kelly, we're thinking 5,200 as our target for the end of the year, so it's not heroic 
uh, probably single-digit return kind of market. Now, maybe we're setting up for 10% off of current levels. Uh, but we think the excitement is underneath because obviously most of the return in the market last year, well-known, was the Magnificent Seven, and everything else didn't do much. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, there, you know, there's so many stocks out there that are still 10, 20, 30, even 50% off their old highs. As we break through, if you get into an economic situation like you've been discussing that's not a big recession, we think it kind of happened already in an asynchronous way. You but think it, it happened already? Yeah. This it, kind of series of, of, as we've talked with others, or Steve Leeson about rolling recessions or mini recessions. Look at the ISM manufacturing, 15 months negative, that kind of thing. Right. Our, our rocky landing idea that we were going through an asynchronous recession for the last 18 months, chips, housing, commercial real estate, the, you know, the regional banks, et cetera. And the, I think people are going to look back and say, gee, the recession already happened. So once you get to that point, then all these stocks, these higher risk stocks, smaller cap stocks, value stocks, cyclical stocks, emerging market stocks mm-hmm. that have been held back because the recession is about to happen and it, the date of it keeps getting pushed away. Right. And you were optimistic all of this year and, and the market and the facts have come around to that point of view. So you, and you think we, we, it's, it's kind of, we can keep going. You know, even yeah. where we are. And, and you have some names here. New Fortress Energy, it's a small cap. PNC, the regional bank. Argenics and Biotech. Tencent in China. You're not afraid of emerging markets here either. No. Those are the most oversold stocks in the market. And, you know, with the dollar starting to soften up, interest rates coming off, and expectations being so low. I mean, everyone's calling China uninvestable. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong, didn't me, they just have four down years in a row yeah, on that market? Yeah, and that's usually a bell ringer. When something's uninvestable and it's in the cover of Barron's, you know, can't invest there. So these uh, Tencent, as an example, is let's call it the Facebook uh, of China, and it's trading at a single-digit multiple. It's down 60% off its highs. Uh, All you need is just a whiff of good news, Mm -hmm. and those stocks are poised to have big moves up. So do do you have a point of view on the MAG7, which is jokingly being called the LAG7? you're specifically avoiding that? Is it fine to keep holding it? I mean, some of these were literally considered value stocks a year ago. Yeah, and I, I think with there, I, the, the stock picking theme still plays out. We're, we're kind of looking for specific names there. I'd like, like to look at a Google as maybe a less expensive option. Uh, even Meta, which we talked about 10 cents before. But uh, broadly, to me, the Mag 7 have great fundamentals. People know that. The stocks price those. They'll do okay. We, we have them as market performers as a group. And so within that, I think you can make a little bit of money. But I don't think that's where you're going to make more than single-digit returns this year. And one interesting thing, given the discussion we were just having about, is the data pointing to the Fed, giving the Fed urgency to cut or not. You're more in the camp that thinks we aren't going to get as many cuts. You know, and yeah. did I, I'm sure you looked at the jobs report this morning and, and thought, yeah, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. I, sure? I, yeah. I, I, you know, well, I have to invest money, so I have to have a base case. I right. could be wrong. But, uh, you know, we, we kind of try to understand the Fed based on the psychology of the institution and the guy running it. Right now, Jay Paul embarrassed himself two years ago when he took too long to hike. And uh, he's sitting there. His guys have done the study, the 70s Fed, Arthur Burns. They cut three times early. Then they had to, you know, hike again. And he doesn't want that to, to repeat. He has two goals. One is full employment and one is inflation. He's at, he's at goal number one. So it's not like he needs to cut 
to get employment to be better. It's mm-hmm. as tight as it's been in a long time. And he's still not at hole number two. And, uh, well, even the wage number, I know people are saying the hourly, there's different reasons, but it was what? It was a positive surprise today, right? It's still running at 4%. And that is in a structurally tight labor market, which he sees, which is sort of like sort of the supply side problems he had in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very difficult for them to kill inflation. Mm-hmm. It's going to stabilize our guess between 2 and 3%. Not terrible, but there's no, no anxiousness to cut. And by the way, one reason I'm so confident about no six cuts, it's an election year. Once you get to the July meeting, he really can't cut until December. Because it'll look too politically. Yeah. Quick, quick final comment. Then we spoke with David Bonson the other day, who says, "Look, it's going to this market could be range bound for years because it's fully valued. It's twenty times. You know, the earnings expectations are simply already too high." Yeah. Do you have a response to that? Yeah. It, this is what um, you know. We haven't broken through to the old highs yet, Kelly. So we're still in a bear market. And this is like 2013. Everyone's saying we can't go any higher because everyone had that double top on the S&P mm-hmm. in their heads. Same way here. When we break through, and we'll do it with these other stocks that are not anywhere near overvalued. A lot of the stocks you just mentioned are in single-digit multiple range here, low double digits. So there is room for the broader market to move higher without being remotely overvalued at these interest rate levels. All right, Steve Auth, with the confidence and many ideas uh, that you mentioned, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kelly. With Federated Hermes. Still coming up, crude is on track for its third positive week in four as the situation in the Red Sea continues to worsen. Energy expert Dan Jurgen joins us after the break with his thoughts on where the conflict and oil prices could go from here. Plus, four big banks kick off earnings season next Friday, and big tech results are right around the corner. So listen up, all you retail options traders out there. Our trader will tell you which names could get a pre-earnings boost in today's Three Buys and a Bail. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Oil is about to post its third positive week in four as Houthi strikes continue to keep Red Sea commerce at a near standstill. Shipping giant Maersk saying they will divert all vessels south around Africa's Cape of Good Hope for the, quote, foreseeable future. Here's what U.S. Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm told Squawk Box this morning. This conflict itself has really only had a limited impact on on energy prices you know, for us in the U.S., the gas prices, for example, are at 309 uh, today, 3.089, something like that, um, more than $1.93 lower than the peak after Putin's war. Uh, 30 states, in 30 states, the average is less than $3 a gallon. So we are, so far, uh, we aren't seeing the price per barrel or the impact at the pump. But obviously, the United States is on it and is leading this coalition to protect those commercial shippers. Let's talk to our next guest about where we might see the biggest fallout as this conflict escalates. We're joined by S&P Global Vice Chair Dan Jurgen. Dan, it's great to have you here. And how serious a conflict is this? Well, I think it's it's uh, it's serious, but it could get more serious. Uh, obviously, we're starting to see an impact on oil prices, geopolitical risk coming into a market that up till now has really been dominated by supply and demand, and the supply exceeds demand. Uh, and the healthies show no sign of backing off. 
And so I think the next stage would be if you saw a real response. And we've seen MERS today saying, for instance, they're going to uh, stop sending their ships through uh, the Red Sea uh, for an indefinite period of time. What does the behavior of the oil price tell you? Or is it too soon to know? Well, I think we're starting to see that oil price that really hasn't responded to geopolitical tension to what's happening in the Middle East starting to respond. The reason it hasn't responded is, I think, is because of this phenomenal growth in supply uh, from North America, that today, North America, oil and gas is greater than the production from uh, the Middle East, which has been a real stabilizer. But uh, the Red Sea has become an important channel for uh, oil. Uh, before the uh, before the October uh, attack by Hamas, uh, about 40, uh, oil equivalent to about 40% of what was passing through the Strait of Hormuz was passing through the Red Sea. That number is now down to about half that. Wow. We spoke with Amrita Sen the other day, and I asked her if we should expect, you know, bigger sanctions enforcement on Iran as this ramps up, which could obviously affect the global oil supply. But she said it might not because so much of that Iranian oil is going to China. It's circumventing the U.S. dollar system, kind of implicitly sanctions. Do you think that's true? How should we be thinking about the risk of losing some of that supply into the market? I think it, I think it could be certainly tightened up. I think you could see the sanctions stepped up. Uh, also, there are other things going on. There's a disruption in Libya, about 300,000 barrels a day. So there is an overhang of supply, but you know, so much of the tension basically revolves around Iran and its proxies in the Middle East and uh, the increase uh, in violence. And we've seen the U.S. responding to the 120 attacks on U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq with this. Uh, take out of somebody, uh, a, a militia leader in, in uh, an Iranian-led militia leader in Iraq. And I think you have to be concerned, very concerned with the Houthis who seem to show no, uh, uh, no restraint and are clearly and guided by Iran, including Iran providing them intelligence on which ships to attack. So as a student of history, where would you be watching for this to broaden out or escalate further? And, and if it's kind of watching markets and the oil market and thinking, well, you know, again, it doesn't look overly exercised about uh, what seems to be a widening conflict. What does that tell you? Well, I think that, I mean, I think the big difference from the past is the position of the United States, Canada and the Western Hemisphere. And if we just look at supply and demand, uh, there's more uh, supply coming into the market than demand in 2024. I think it would be if you started to see real disruption, and we haven't seen seen that, and what you can see is that tankers simply uh, go around uh, go around the, the, the Cape of Good Hope, rather, so it adds costs. But I think there's just this general nervousness. The other thing, Kelly, is that about a third of container ships go through the Red Sea. Yeah. And so it's not just oil and gas, but it's the overall supply chains, we thought that disruptions were behind us, but that part could, uh, as we go into uh, into February, that could be a bigger problem. You no, know, it's fascinating to think about the implications here where our, our ability to increase our own energy supplies might undermine the urgency with which we tackle the Mideast situation. And in a way, it you know, if oil was at 130 and the price of gasoline was upwards of $4 a gallon, I have to imagine we'd be seeing a lot more going on to try to restore calm to the region, don't you think? I think that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, this is an election year and 
Uh, I think from the viewpoint of the Biden administration, there are enough problems in the world right. uh, that it doesn't need more. And so I think at this point, uh, it will it's, we'll try and deter the healthies. And if it stays where it is, we'll see the price, we'll see an impact on price, but not a dramatic increase that would really cause uh, a greater sense of urgency. But I think the position of the United States, by far the world's largest oil producer, it has been not only a, a rebalancing supply and demand, it's been a rebalancing geopolitically as well. It's oh, fascinating. And in the meantime, like you said, we'll see if it does put more upward pressure on inflation in the months ahead. Dan, thanks so much. We appreciate your time today. Dan Yergin yeah. from S&P. Still ahead, earn while you learn. That's one way to try and solve the historic shortage of U.S. construction workers. We'll have those details coming up. Plus, the bear case for Airbnb. It's begun, according to Bernstein, but they say they're the last bull at the rodeo. Expecting strong growth in the year ahead, the analyst joins us to make his case, with the shares still down nearly 40% from their all-time high nearly three years ago. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. House Republicans plan to move forward next week with holding Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. The president's son defied a congressional subpoena last month to appear for a private deposition, saying he would only testify if the testimony came in public. A U.S. fugitive accused of faking his own death to avoid rape charges has been extradited, extradited to Utah from the United Kingdom. The fugitive, known as Nicholas Rossi, also faces complaints made against him for domestic violence in Rhode Island. Rossi's run from the law took a twist when he was arrested in 2021 after being recognized at an airport in Scotland. Since that time, he had insisted to authorities that he was an Irish orphan named Arthur Knight, who had never been to the U.S. Well, gamers can have their toast and eat it, too. If you've got $40, you can go to Walmart and buy yourself an Xbox Series S toaster. Yes, the two-slice toaster looks like the console and burns the Xbox logo into your toast. This is important for many people. Uh, this is not the first small appliance, by the way, from Xbox. It sold a mini fridge at Target back in 2021 and 22. And Kelly, <laughs> I, I think the idea of Xbox etched into your toast is is the next big thing in the uh, in the household at yours. I'm tickled. They just should have come out with it maybe for the Christmas season. And those who couldn't get an Xbox could say, well, here's your Xbox toast. And here's your Xbox. You're I got an Xbox toast. What, what kind of Xbox you got? Well, you got the Xbox toast. <laughs> you play games on it? No, but it makes a nice English muffin. And I want to tell you, Kelly, we are christening our new set location here in uh, in Studio A with this broadcast right here. You this, are in Studio A right now? I am where you used to Wait sit. Wait until people see it. It is gorgeous. Oh, it's vast. And it looks it's good. Vast. Looks good Very on you. Nice. Thanks, Tyler. Enjoy the toast. See you in a little bit. <laughs> Tyler Matheson. Coming up, three buys into bail, tech earnings edition. Featuring this surprising name, our trader is bailing on. Its shares are off to their worst start since 2016. Think you know what it is? Tweet me at KellyCNBC. It's a biggie. That's your hint. We'll reveal it after the break. Dow back in positive territory by 16 points. Still negative on the week, though. Stay with us.
Welcome back. It's a choppy start to the year for big tech. Piper even saying the MAG7 has become the LAG7 and saying they've underperformed smid caps since the October low. But our trader isn't giving up on big tech, and she's looking ahead to earnings in a few weeks for names that could see pre- and post-report boosts. Joining us with her three buys into bail is Danielle Shea, Vice President of Options at Simpler Trading. Diane, uh, Diane, Danielle, great to see you. Let's run through the first couple so we can get to your bail, which is interesting. And the first buy is Meta. Uh, what makes this one you'd want to hang on to uh, coming off what's been a relatively hot streak? So I like this stock, Kelly, because the long-term trend looks great. The pullback here was relatively soft into the 21 EMA on the daily chart. But most importantly, they've done really well and they reacted really well to earnings the past several quarters. So when I'm looking for stocks that may rally going into an earnings report, that's exactly what I want to see. So I like this one, especially with the relative strength that it's demonstrating today. And I'm going to be trading this one ideally up into about 365, 370. Mm, Okay, so we're about 352. So that gives people a feel for it. Next one is Amazon. And all of these are these names that you would buy going into the report and then wait and see? Or you think the kind of the charts work either way? So, Kelly, what I do with these is I buy and I hold them in long-term accounts where I'm not getting in and out, but also for earnings specifically, I trade them in the options market. So with Amazon, if I'm going to buy this before the report with options, what I would do is when it triggers to the upside, I would buy those options and ride those options for an increase in implied volatility going into the report, but then sell them to capitalize on that rise in price before a vol crush comes through. So with that trade, what I'd like to do is when I start to see that stock shift to the upside, I'd buy it here, targeting about 150, 155, hmm. uh, get out before the report, and then trade a post-earnings move as well. Okay, so that would be about $5 of upside from where we are now. I like your optimism on these because not everyone's feeling it, although Microsoft is a little more consensus. It's only 3% below the November all-time high. You'd be owning this one as well. Why, why do you think this one, but also some of the others, are going to experience better momentum in the next few days, weeks, than they have so far this year? So, Kelly, I like the consolidation on Microsoft, and it has typically performed really well during that pre-earnings time frame. So this is a trade that I like to do quarter over quarter. Generally, I'm going to come in about three weeks before the report, buy options on this name with the idea that I'm going to ride it up into the excitement before the news. Now, the problem here is that Microsoft has been a little bit stagnant, and that's the number one criticism that I'm getting. People are saying, Danielle, Microsoft's not moving. And Mm -hmm. so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, I'm still going to trade it. I'm still holding it. I would like to see it back up at those previous all-time highs. But I'll tell you that, you know, if this stock does start breaking down, that'll be the biggest canary in the coal mine for this earnings season. And what would that break down? This is kind of a dumb question. So maybe the upside is 380. That was kind of the late November high in that in that territory. How much how much downside before you bail? Let me see. So before checking out Microsoft or so right now on the on the chart. So I look at the 50 simple on the daily chart. So that'd really be below 365. Let's give it 363. That would be a key line in the sand where I'd say, you know what, this is triggering to the downside. Um, And at that point, I'd be pretty cautious about continuing to hold this on a short-term long, but I'm still absolutely going to hold my long-term stock. All right, that brings us to your bail, which is Apple. It was the mystery chart we showed before the break. It's off to a bad start with a couple of downgrades this year. What do you see going on here? 
So when you look at Apple, I don't like the way that it reacted to the last several earnings reports. So first of all, that's a bad sign. And when you have that, the stock typically isn't going to rally as well going into an earnings report. So for that reason, I'm not eyeing it for a bullish trade prior to this report. But then also you have some critical breakdowns in this stock. So if you look at the chart on the daily chart specifically, it's broken down below the 50 simple moving average. That's a critical support zone and it broke down on high volume as well. So whenever a stock does that, it tells me that there's something wrong with the technical aspect here. So that was one sign, but I'll tell you that the next zone of support is going to be around 180. Um, so if we end up breaking that 180 price point, that is a key, key line in the sand. And that's All where right. we could really see the stock break down. Just so I've been go ahead. I've been edging out of this stock and I haven't shorted it yet. Uh, but I would short it if it breaks 180. We're just under 182 now. So that gives you the stakes, people, uh, as we watch that stock uh, as really still a barometer in many ways for the market. Danielle, as always, thank you so much today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Danielle Shea, Simpler Traders VP of Options. This week's losses, by the way, push Apple's 14-day relative strength index below nine. It's the most oversold name by that metric. And for the full list of Wall Street's most oversold names, you can go to cnbc.com slash pro. Still ahead, a jolt of construction job openings. We have over 100,000 more of them now than a year ago. To help close that gap, one trade group is looking to high schools. And Kate Rogers is just south of San Francisco with that story today. Kate? Kelly, that's right. 17,000 construction jobs were added last month. But as you mentioned, there is a talent shortage that will impact the workforce moving ahead. We'll tell you much more coming up after the break on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. The construction industry is actually one of the highest paying fields outside of the business world, but it is still struggling to attract workers. As we learned this morning, construction added another uh, 17,000 jobs last month as it remains one of the steadiest growing parts of the economy. But could that number be even higher? The industry is now pairing up with schools to try and fill more roles. Kate Rogers is out in California with those details today. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, you said it. Uh, The construction industry is certainly searching for workers. As of the end of November, there were about half a million open jobs. That's according to Jolt's analysis by Associated Builders and Contractors, a trade group. That number is up 100,000 from the same time last year, and it's also at the highest level since 2022. Now, one way to fill the gap, of course, get younger workers interested while they're still in school. Southern Nevada Trades High School opened in August of last year, looking to do just that with its first cohort of 75 students. They'll take a full curriculum of classes including English and math, but they also take career technical education in construction. It's been um, very, very popular with families who are saying that the students are maybe not interested in traditional education or potentially not um, necessarily wanting to go to college. And so it offers an opportunity for those students to come and get hands-on learning. We have an integrated curriculum so that students are constantly being reinforced with this is how what you're learning will impact your future in your workforce and in the trades. Now, they're certainly going to have options once they graduate from school as uh, construction and manufacturing spending is continuing to grow in part thanks to funding hitting the street from the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. It's hundreds of billions of dollars over the next four or five years is going to be coming out and uh, and, and that's going to have a big impact on uh, skilled labor and the shortage we're facing right now. 
Now, Kelly, this is an issue we've talked about for many years now, not only in the construction industry, but a lot of baby boomer retirements are taking place and there just are not enough younger workers moving into the workforce to take those positions as they open up. Back over to you. And this is, you're at a residential site, but obviously we know huge government spending in construction as well. It seems like roles of all kinds they need, right? That's right. Yeah, they certainly do need roles of all kinds. And the best news for younger workers who may be considering college but aren't sure if it's the right fit is that a lot of these jobs do pay well. There are technician jobs, welder jobs that start between $30 and $40 an hour, Kelly, and you don't need a bachelor's degree to fill them up. And as you mentioned, this is a residential site, but obviously non-residential construction and the government-funded projects have been a lot of where these openings are turning up and will continue to be opening in the future. All right. Kate Rogers, good to see you. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Coming up, analysts at Bernstein have a warning for Airbnb bears. They say they're looking at the wrong metrics. The bull case for a stock that's already up 55% over the past year. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bernstein is calling out the Airbnb bears today, saying worries about the company's future volume growth being too optimistic are just flat out wrong. Instead, Bernstein argues Airbnb has outperformed on volume and will continue to do so. For more, let's bring in the analyst behind the call, Bernstein's Richard Clark. Richard, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So I'm curious how you, on the one hand, sort of saying, look, the bear case has begun and yet you remain bullish. What's behind that? I guess, you know, as we've come out into 2024 and, and people are very aware of what performance has looked like over the last few years, we've had a few people question the fact that Airbnb has only grown room nights by about 8% on a, 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 a per year over the last four years. And that's a lot less than what the market expects it to grow at over the next four years. And so we wanted to have a look at that and say, well, actually, rooms or properties maybe have grown at 8%. But what's really happening, what's the real volume measure we should be looking at is customer numbers. And that's grown more like 10% because the properties on average have got bigger. And so therefore, looking just purely at property numbers is not showing uh, the true volume growth that Airbnb has delivered. And so how, you know, I understand fundamentally why you need volume growth for the stock to do well, but there's still an argument to be made for, you know, uh, uh, profitability. So just kind of balance those two factors. How important is volume growth? Why do you think that's the real metric people need to be watching? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of operational leverage in selling travel. I mean, it's a it's a business that doesn't have a very large cost of sales, particularly for Airbnb, because it's very low in its marketing spend. Um, and so if you do deliver that volume growth and price growth, but people tend to prefer volume growth, um, you will deliver the margin expansion on top of that. So I think it's always been the key metric uh, that Airbnb needs to show that it's gaining share of the lodging market. And we believe it comfortably has been and comfortably will, will continue to do so as we look forward. What do you think is behind the the kind of bear case on the stock? Is it it's that Airbnbs have gotten too expensive, that the growth rate has peaked, all of the above? Yeah, I think that's I think that's that, that that's key. I think you know, one, the stock does trade on a reasonably high multiple, so the bar is set quite high. And I think there's a, a concern that Airbnb maybe is a value product and it needs a value proposition relative to hotels that means that customers will keep using it so because your average airbnb on a property level is 40 percent more expensive today than 2019 that brings about that concern 
But actually, on a per customer level, it's more like high 20% more expensive, which is much more in line with inflation. Hmm. So we don't think that value proposition has meaningfully changed. How can that be the case that the property is 40% more expensive than it was four years ago, but the customer is only paying 20% more? Because the properties have got bigger. So the Airbnb supply growth over the last four years has been much more in four, five bedroom houses. And actually, the number of private rooms, shared rooms, kind of the origins of Airbnb, that part has actually shrunk over the last four years. So the number of five bedroom properties on Airbnb is up north of 60% over the last four years. So you've seen the average property get bigger. It's housing eight, 9% more customers uh, than they were going forward. And I don't think that's a metric that the company discloses and probably is being missed when people are thinking about the volume um, and price growth that Airbnb has delivered over the last, uh, uh, through the pandemic. It's interesting because that kind of goes back to the other question I would ask, which is we've seen crackdowns in New York, a lot of other major cities, which seem to yep. get right at the heart of the the offering of Airbnb in the first place. Hey, come, you know, stay in my apartment for a week or something like that. Uh, how much of a threat are those kind of regulatory responses? I mean, less of a threat now than they would have been four years ago because uh, Airbnb has become much more of a uh, rural, suburban, small city product. That's where the business has grown. It's much more international, much more diverse than it was. So New York was was less than 1% of sales. No individual city is more than 1% of sales. Very diverse business. And really where the growth is, is in areas where there isn't incremental regulation coming to, uh, to bite 166 price target, $30 of upside. And I think it was in the Internet Mag 7 that we talked about with Mark Mahaney the other day. So it has been on a, on a good run. You're sticking with it. Richard, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it today. Thanks, having Richard Clark. That does it for The Exchange. Up next on Power Lunch, we turn our attention to the national debt at a record high. Congress can't agree on where to spend, and the U.S. could face a shutdown yet again just a couple of weeks' time. We've got the implications and what it will take to get a deal done. Tyler is getting ready. I'll see you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.